Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. This is episode 92 in our series, and who would have ever thought we would get up to a number like this? I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip back in time to bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago, exactly as it happened, in the words of some of the greatest sports writers of all time. And this week... We are in the time period from July 26th to August 1st, 1971. DraftKings Sportsbook, it's not only my favorite sportsbook, but also America's top-rated sportsbook. Speaking of America and Canada, of course, too, our top athletes right now are over in Tokyo competing for gold medals. And DraftKings had a medal-worthy offer just for our listeners. Listen to this. Place any pre-event wager of $1 to be eligible to cash $100 in free credits if America wins any medal this year. That's 100 to 1 odds on an American athlete to stand on the podium and receive a gold, silver, or bronze medal this week at the Olympics. 100 to 1 odds on an offer like this doesn't come around often, so sign up for DraftKings Sportsbook now and get in on all the action. I love using DraftKings Sportsbook. It's easy to navigate, has plenty of instructions for new bettors, and nearly limitless ways to get in on all the action. My friends, uh, lots of people that I know in the sports world have been loving DraftKings Sportsbook, and I know you will too. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN, that's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network, when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 in free credits if America wins a medal. That's called THPN to turn a dollar into $100 in free credits. This is for a limited time only, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. You must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, Pennsylvania only, new customers only, restrictions apply, see DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. In addition to DraftKings, we're also sponsored by Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper website where you can get into literally tens of thousands of newspapers that they have on file. We get most of our research from that fine website. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, now fully open for customers. I had lunch this uh, with my family there yesterday, and it was absolutely wonderful. If you like what we do here each week and every day on Twitter, just about every day, even in the summer, please go to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's free podcast, but we have some really neat stuff and special content available only to our subscribers. Uh, we get a chance to go into great detail each week uh, when we put out these special uh, shows, uh, actually a couple times a month and we get to tell our stories in just a little more detail and a little more depth that's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe 
Okay, so this week has been a really, really special week here on the, the shores of Lake Erie in Port Coburn, Ontario. Uh, most of you know my son, Andy Cole, he puts the podcast together. He does all the technical work. I just do the hockey stuff. Well, Andy was here for this week, uh, and we got to spend a lot of time uh, just seeing exactly what he does to put the podcast together. Uh, made me understand the process a lot more to actually sit with him and and we put uh, last week's show together side-by-side. Uh, side. It was really a great experience for me. Uh, he is a true professional, and, and I just can't believe all the work he puts into this. So this week's show, well, we have July drawing to a close, and the dog days of August, usually a desert wasteland in terms of hockey news, was just around the corner, but there was some news coming out of NHL cities and even some minor league cities, and we're going to take some quick hits on those right off the bat this week. One Vancouver Canucks defenseman left hospital this week and another was admitted. Barry Wilkins, who played the 70-71 season with the NHL Canucks, was released just before the week began on Saturday following emergency surgery for kidney stones. And man, that must have been painful. Jim Hargraves, the Canucks' number two draft choice in the 70 June amateur draft, which was the Canucks' very first amateur draft, he entered Royal Columbian Hospital as the week began on Sunday to undergo surgery early in the week on ligaments in his angle. Hargraves missed more than a month last season because of leg injuries and he played for the Canucks American League farm team in Rochester, New York, well known to everybody in this area, the Rochester Americans. Meanwhile, General Manager Bud Poyle of the Canucks informed us he's beginning contract negotiations this week with Vancouver residents Orland Curtinback, Wayne Mackey, and goalie Dunk Wilson. National Hockey League fans in the United States and those like me who live near the border in Canada will be happy to find out that the Columbia Broadcasting System has announced that it will televise 12 regular season contests in the NHL during the 1971-72 season starting this fall and they will be televising Stanley Cup playoff games. CBS begins its sixth straight year of NHL coverage on Sunday, January 9th, and after omitting Super Bowl Sunday on the 16th, why wouldn't they? They'll resume telecast January 23rd and every following Sunday through April 2nd. Playoff coverage will begin Sunday, April 9th, and continue through May 7 to 14, depending, of course, on the length of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Detroit Red Wings general manager Ned Harkness informs us this week that two players, former Blues defenseman Bob Wall and right wing Doug Volmar, have signed contracts for the upcoming season. Bob Wall, now 28, former Hamilton Red Wing, I enjoyed watching in junior. He was acquired with forward Ab McDonald two months ago as part of the deal that sent Carl Brewer's rights from the Red Wings to the Blues. Doug Volmer is a former Michigan State All-American hockey player, and he led the American Hockey League last season in goals with 42. 
At Harrison, New York this week, Bobby Russo of the New York Rangers beat Vancouver Canucks Dale Talon on the second hole of a sudden-death playoff to win the sixth National Hockey League golf tournament held in that area. The two were tied at a score of 75 at the end of 18 holes. Both parred the first playoff hole. Russo then parred the second while younger Talon took a bogey and that gave Bobby Russo the victory. A little sad note this week. A lot of people like this guy. Kenneth Ken Campbell was the director of player personnel for the Chicago Blackhawks of the National Hockey League. And he passed away on his farm this week when the tractor he was driving turned over. He was 47 years old. Campbell was using the tractor to try and remove a stump when the tractor suddenly flipped over and it pinned him underneath. Ken was a native of Montreal and was a standout high school football and hockey player and he was a teammate of Doug Harvey. He played left wing for the Pembroke Lumber Kings of the Northern Ontario Hockey Association and in 1957 he became a player coach with the Troy Bruins of the International Hockey League. When the franchise was shifted to Greensboro, North Carolina the, the next season, he moved there as a full-time coach. In 1960, uh, Ken went to St. Catharines as coach of the OHA Junior A Teepees, and in 64, he became the director of player personnel and chief Eastern Canada scout for the Chicago Blackhawks, for whom he worked until the time of his passing. For the past three years, he had also been the general manager of the Dallas Blackhawks of the Central Hockey League. Ken, a lot of people didn't know, was also the part owner of the St. Catharines Junior team, but sold out to his partner Fred Muller at the NHL meetings in Montreal just this past June. Uh, they've had a lot of uh, this, a lot of sadness for the Campbell family. A son, Randy, enlisted in the U.S. Army, and he was only 20 years old when he was killed in action in Vietnam in 1966. Bernie Boom Boom Jeff Yon is going to play hockey once again. No, the Boomer wasn't planning on a playing comeback in the NHL, but he was going to suit up again for Montreal Old Timers against the Rangers uh, this week with Gilles Villemir, who was actually going to play in the exhibition game as well. This was a, a uh, pro-am game that was scheduled at Skateland in New Hyde Park, Long Island. Among the visiting players from Montreal who'd be playing were Ivan Cornoyer, uh, Pierre Jerry, who's a Rangers uh, top farm prospect, and New York will have Roger Bear, Brad Park, Jules Villemier, and Pete Bostwick, who's one of the country's top amateur stars and actually not a bad hockey player as well. A good time was had by all at this game. The score, we really don't know, didn't matter. The Philadelphia Flyers are taking a rather unique approach to their training camp this summer. They're starting out in Ottawa, and then on September 28th, they're moving to the University of Pennsylvania, and they're going to train there until the season opens on October 9th. General Manager Keith Allen called the Ottawa and Pennsylvania facilities two of the finest in the entire National Hockey League. Allen cited the ice conditions at the Penn facilities as uh, outstanding, excellent, especially in the warm conditions 
Uh, Penn's new skating pavilion is the home ice of the Ivy League University of Pennsylvania hockey team. I had a good friend from Dunville High School who graduated and he went to the uh, University of Pennsylvania, a fellow by the name of Paul Daigle. Paul passed away this week. Uh, I remember him fondly playing with and against him over the years. He actually played a year or so in the May Police Organization after he graduated from university, became a lawyer, and had a very successful career, and we're going to miss Paul Daigle. Ren Blair, the general manager of the Minnesota North Stars, said this week that Murray Oliver, the veteran center who held out for the first two games of the North Stars 70-71 season, has already agreed to his 71-72 contract. He will be not a holdout this year. Blair said Murray got a nice raise for what he did last season. We sat down for a while and it worked everything out. It was quite a contrast from what we both went through a year ago. Glad to see Murray Oliver getting recognized for the fine work he's done in the NHL. He got a raw rap from Stafford Smythe, owner of the Maple Leafs, who actually called his player a loser at one point. And I'm glad Murray found some happiness with the North Stars. Had another little uh, update from the Canucks that we missed early in the week. Later on in the week, we learned that the Canucks were trying to arrange uh, a working agreement with the Seattle Totems of the Western Hockey League uh, to send about six players, half a dozen players, to Seattle for the season. In addition to their Rochester farm team, what the Canucks want to do is have a few players uh, within quick traveling distance in case they need an emergency call-up. So that's what Bud Poyle is doing. And also during the week, he visited Montreal to talk to uh, three young amateur draft picks, Jocelyn Gavermont, Bobby Lalonde, and Richard Lemieux, and of course, their lawyers. And we're speaking of the Western Hockey League, by the way. Do you ever wonder why the Western Hockey League never lasted beyond this time period in a few years that's going to be gone? Speaking now in 1971. Uh, there were many factors that led to the Western Hockey League's demise, not the least of which was the World Hockey Association, which at the point in time we're talking about right now was just starting to make noises about becoming a reality. Uh, in the 60s, the Western Hockey League actually made noises. There were plans afoot. Uh, I know someone who worked in the industry there who told us that the Western League was definitely trying to make itself a major league team because the NHL had ignored the West Coast with any expansion plans up to 1967. So in the earlier 60s, they were going to raid the NHL of players. There was talk of Bobby Hull being snatched away from Chicago when his contract expired and signed by a team, well, probably the Los Angeles Blades, who would have gone up and been the West Coast Major Hockey League. Didn't happen, and here's an example of why the West Coast Western Hockey League never really was able to organize itself into a major league with this story that came out of Salt Lake this week. The president of the Salt Lake Golden Eagles, president owner Dan Meyer, that is, he must have been wondering what he had to do to get payment for Billy McNeil. McNeil was traded to the San Diego Gulls very early in the 1970-71 WHL season. What a lot of people didn't know is that Salt Lake was supposed to get a veteran winger by the name of Fred Hiltz, well known in minor league hockey circles. They were supposed to get him from San Diego in a straight swap for McNeil, but Hiltz 
failed to pass his medical, as it turned out. So he never did report to Salt Lake, but McNeil played the rest of the season for the Gulls, and Salt Lake got nothing in return for the player. Gene Kanisiewicz, the 29-year-old who was then president of the Western Hockey League, was informed of the situation and he established a deadline for the San Diego Gulls to make some type of a reparation, some type of restitution, either another player or money to Salt Lake. But the deadline that uh, Kanisiewicz set passed with no compensation being directed towards Salt Lake. So now a new deadline of August 1st was set by the new league president, Bill McFarlane, but San Diego once again has taken no action and the deadline passed with no compensation going to Salt Lake once again. This this is just unconscionable. This could not happen in any organization that purports to be somewhat professional or even major league. And it's little things like this that added up that caused splits between the clubs, not the unity, a league that wants to promote itself needs. And the WHL finally went by the wayside. And in the coming years, we'll cover all of that along with the rise of the WHA. Now, here's a story that I... I uh, read, viewed with great interest back in 1971. Clarence Campbell, the president of the National Hockey League, and Alan Eagleson, the executive director of the NHL Players Association, announced this week that Edward J. Houston had been named arbitrator in all salary disputes between players and their teams for the 71-72 season. Ed Houston is an Ottawa lawyer, and he begins his duties on August 10th, a month before the NHL training camps open. Eagleson said, I have great respect for Mr. Houston's ability and his independence. He's been sound knowledge and extensive background in hockey, both as a former president of the Eastern Professional Hockey League, and he has tried several cases involving professional hockey players. Eagleson said he's confident that Ed Houston is the most qualified person available. Now, up until this point in time, Clarence Campbell had handled every salary arbitration. Now, everyone knew Clarence Campbell worked for the owners. So he would handle an arbitration, trying to be fair to both the players and the guys who pay him. That didn't work. What you got to worry about is that Houston is not in anybody's pocket here. We didn't know at the time, but Al Eagleson was colluding with the owners. And this might not be a good idea. It might be... We'll give you the history on it as it unfolds in the next season. Gene Carr was the number one choice of the St. Louis Blues in this June's amateur draft, which was seven weeks ago, right about now. He signed a 71-72 contract, according to Blues' new general manager, old general manager, new general manager again, Lynn Patrick. Carr, who's 5'11", 185 pounds, uh, he plays center, but he also plays the wing quite well. He scored 36 goals and was credited with 68 assists in only 32 games last season for the Flynn Flon Bombers, that junior hockey development machine in the Western Canada Hockey League. Patrick describes Gene Carr as big, fast, and rough with an excellent shot. 
Here's a, a story out of Minnesota that got my attention now. I didn't know this guy, but in, uh, Roger Godden, who graduated in 1971 from Ohio University Sports Administrative Program, he's a native of Eveleth, Minnesota. He has been named Executive Director of the United States Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, the, the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame is located in Eveleth, and it will honor American greats, and it's been endorsed by the U.S. Amateur Hockey Association. Roger Godden, 50 years later, is a member of the Society for International Hockey Research, uh, of which I'm a member as well. He's a great hockey historian. He had the interest in hockey history in 1971. He has done some amazing work over the years. I'm proud to say that I've met Roger. I know him a bit. He's a wonderful guy. And this is where it all began for Roger Godden. Here's a story out of Columbus, Ohio. Long before the Blue Jackets became into existence, the Columbus Seals, a new team in the International Hockey League, which is kind of uh, described as a semi-pro league, but the players are paid. It's their job. They named their coach this week. It's Terry Gray, who last year was the coach of the Montreal Voyageurs of the AHL. Gray is a 33-year-old veteran player, and uh, he, I don't think he's going to play in Columbus this year, but he did play in the NHL with Boston, Los Angeles, and the St. Louis Blues. The Columbus Seals are, of course, going to be a farm team for the California Golden Seals. Here's a story out of Boston. The Bruins seem to be having trouble getting players to sign their 71-72 contracts. And owner Weston Adams Jr. was worried there might not be enough available bodies for training camp, according to this report from Jerry Nason of the Boston Globe. Jerry writes that 20 days before training camp, the Bruins officially don't have enough hockey players to beat the old Arlington Ice House Six. The focus on the big pack negotiations with their majesty's Oren Esposito has camouflaged the fact that all the Bruins are looking for a lot more dough than they earned last season, even though they had an alarming lack of playoff success. A signed contract for 7172 right now at 150 Causeway Street in Boston could actually be a collector's item. There are so few of them. No NHL player can go to camp if he's not signed, so you have to get this signings done in the summer. Uh, Boston uh, President Weston Adams Jr. said that's the new rule. The players have to be signed before training camp. And Adams says, I don't know what we're going to do uh, and what we're going to look like at camp. Weston uh, added his, or ended his brief interview with Jerry Nason saying, if you can skate, come on up to Canada to the camp. Westy said that uh, the club expected salary pitches uh, from one end of the roster to the other. It goes with any team in sports that had just compiled an extraordinary record, but he admitted the Bruins didn't have many signed contracts with 20 days to go. But he did say, I think we're progressing. Uh, Adam said the demands this year are really big and he would prefer not to go to arbitration with his players. The new Bobby Orr contract is basically, from what we're told, all set up except for some detail work. Adams called that one uh, pretty close, but he did add, I don't think we're close at all 
with Phil Esposito. The Vancouver Canucks situation is something I want to do a little bit of a a deeper dive into in this show as well. If you've been listening uh, all summer, you know that it's been a financial mess in Vancouver with the American owners. And we were really hearing these stories and wondering if they're going to become another NHL hot steaming mess like the California franchise. Well, a Vancouver columnist Clancy Larange, uh, if you believe him, things are not good the way the Canucks are being run. And I really know of no reason not to believe Clancy. Here's his report this week on what's been going on with the Vancouver Canucks. Lorangia wrote that his newsman's nose kept telling him that there should be some interesting new developments on the Canucks ownership situation sometime maybe this week, but for him it's been frustrating trying to get at the truth. Here's how it had been for a poor benighted hockey writer on the Canucks beat. First you're told that there should be some changes in the directorship when the brass meet in mid-July. Then you're informed that the meeting has been canceled. Can't get all the directors together, they told him. Then you hear that Herb Capazzi is heading for San Francisco to talk to Tom Scallon, his leading debtor, who is the basically the president of Metacore, owner of the Canucks. And this is accompanied by two rumors. One, that Scallon decided the situation in Vancouver is untenable and that he had decided to get out. Or two, that Capazzi will offer an additional $3 million on top of the $3.6 million loan to Medicore he already gave to take over the majority shares in Northwest Sports, which is the parent company of the Canucks. So Capazzi uh, tells Clancy that there's no nothing to indicate that Scallon wants out, and he denies, after coming back from San Francisco, that he made him an offer to buy the team. Scallon says he has no intention of selling. So you scratch those two rumors, or anyway, put them in the officially dead or in the temporary file, your choice. So now, Larranger hears that general manager Bud Poyles out of town had to go to Seattle to talk to some other club policy with Lyman Walters, who happened to be in that uh, Washington city. Ponder that there must be a better way to run a company you don't know where anybody is. Then you hear that Scallon and Walters suddenly turned up this week in Vancouver. They've been interviewed by Securities Commission investigating the Canucks financial picture. And then they left town with not talking to anybody else. And in fact, Bud Poyle said he didn't even know that his two bosses were in town. Larange phoned the Canucks PR man, Greg Dulles, to give him what for, for not letting him know that the uh, owners of the Canucks were in the city. And Douglas told him that nobody in the Canuck offices knew they were in the city either. Who does that? Poyle, as we mentioned, confirmed it, saying he was also getting uh, hell from the Canucks directors for not telling them that Scallon and Walters were in town. He didn't know either. Nobody seems to know what's going on when the bosses are sneaking around in your city and not letting you know what's going on, especially when they're being investigated by the Securities Commission for their financial activities. 
in BC. Now, if you think everybody that we're talking to that didn't know they were in town is blowing smoke, it even gets goofier. Bill Winnett is just the guy who's supposed to run the Northwest Sports Operation for Medicor in Vancouver. He hadn't seen them and he didn't know they were in town either, and he was very believable. Ponder once again that there has to be a better way to run a business, especially one as high profile and complex as a National Hockey League franchise. Now, here's the kicker. Winnett, once again, the guy that runs Northwest Sports, well, he actually wondered out loud what prompted Medicor, the guy Scallon and Walter, to show up in Vancouver since... The press had been told at Kapazi's takeover press conference, they were advised that Scallon and Walter were not to come to Canada. So why did they show up in Canada anyway? A lot of people wondering about that. So Clancy Laranger also wonders just how long this sad situation is going to go on, especially when a financial page colleague in his paper reported that he had been told that the securities investigation is a long way from being over. Now add to this that on Friday of this week, Word came out that the United States Security and Exchange Commission had grave doubts about Medicor's ability to function as a going business concern. Now, you don't wish Scallon and Walters any hard luck remembering that they were the only ones with guts enough to put up money for the NHL franchise, but you can't help but hope that this is going to speed up delivery of the Canucks into Canadian hands, uh, feel very patriotic, and get back to beating the heat, but get the Canucks ownership back in Canada because so far the Americans have not done very well with it in the one year the team has been in existence. Bruce Garvey, the fine journalist with the Toronto Star, caught up with the Canadian sudden goaltending superstar, Ken Dryden, and they talked about Ken's summer job with Nader's Raiders in the United States. Just a short three months ago, Ken Dryden was Canada's newest sports hero, the incredible rookie goalie who stole the Stanley Cup for the Montreal Canadiens. That was before he traded himself to a new American team known as Nader's Raiders. Now he wants to talk about pollution, not about hockey. When the Stanley Cup frenzy died down in Montreal, Dryden turned his back on the on the golf course, the summer hockey schedule, and lucrative off-season jobs. He headed south to Washington, D.C. to join consumer advocate Ralph Nader's crusade for the little guy against big business and big government. So at this point in time in the summer, Ken is working 65 hours a week for basically nothing, helping Nader's Raiders on their newest project, creation of a huge sports and commercial fishermen's lobby to fight water pollution. Dryden, his brows knitting together in intensity, dodged the locker room banner and talked about Nader, the battle against pollution, his law studies at McGill University, and the, quote, new athlete who is emerging with a public bath backlash against the traditional monosyllabic dumb jock image. The new athlete is Joe Namath, 
movie star, swinger, businessman, and quarterback of the New York Jets. The new athlete is Muhammad Ali, the political activist and former world heavyweight boxing champion. And this new athlete is Ken Dryden, the 23-year-old hockey star with a modest Fu Manchu mustache, longish hair, bell-bottom pants, and a burning social curiosity and concern. Ken admitted to Garvey that 20 years ago, uh, his consuming interest in a career in public interest law would probably have been out of the question if he'd wanted to mine the Canadian goal for the uh, for half the year, or at least for all the playoffs this year. Hours and hours of traveling in a train would have clipped his academic wings, even if a sports organization would have accepted, would have then been uh, a, re- a revolutionary idea 20 years ago. Ken says athletes today are much better educated too, and there's a greater emphasis on social issues. Salaries are much better, and you don't have to work in the summer as a hockey player anymore. Nowadays, a team has one common interest, and individuals all have private interests of their own. Ken says you have to have these private interests, otherwise, You'd just be bored to death with the grind of pro hockey. It would drive you nuts. Dryden's interest centers around his law studies. He'll graduate in a year and a term. And, of course, his uh, interest also centers around his job with Nader. He's one of 35 young law students working this summer with Nader's regular staff for a flat fee for the summer of just $400. And Ken Dryden declined the fee. When asked why, Ken simply replied, Ralph Nader can do more with $400 than I can. Specifically, Ken's assignment is to build a grassroots organization from the 30 million fishermen in the United States and Canada and to press for cleaner water the way the powerful American gun lobby, made up mainly of hunters, effectively blocked gun restrictions. We're doing it on a regional basis, said Ken, and we're starting out with the Chesapeake Bay region first. Eventually, Ken says, they will get up to the Great Lakes and the East and West Coast regions, and that'll include Canada. In other words, they're working on both sides of the border. One difference with the uh, gun lobby there, the Second Amendment, as we've sadly learned 50 years later, protects uh gun owners, protects gun owners too much, in my opinion, as a former police officer who saw the evil that guns provide to to society in so many cases. Ken also mentioned that when he returns to Canada uh, next month, he hopes to work on a basic study of the Canadian water pollution situation. He says uh, he's going to do a pretty detailed essay that hopefully he can make part of his law coursework. The big problem in Canada is working out the division of jurisdictions between federal and provincial governments. It's always been a mess. But this whole subject is something that you can really get excited about. I can uh, attest to that, having lived on the shores of Lake Erie for all my youth and part a lot of my adult life, it's something that always interests me. Ken said that every day you look up at the air and you see that it isn't what it should be. The water has smells or the water looks terrible. You can find crud coming out of the drinking water and fish are dying by the thousands. You just can't avoid it. 
Ken describes working with the Raiders as suddenly finding yourself in the position of doing something about all the things you've seen going on and have been frustrating you. Ken said that Nader's success depends on getting extremely talented people to work unbelievably long hours for little or no money, and it takes something special in a fam in a person to actually pull that off. Dryden, who comes from the Toronto suburb of Islington, worries about people in the public eye, especially sports personalities, professional athletes, getting embroiled in social and political activity with little qualifications or expertise. That's why on the Nader team, he is strictly Ken Dryden, McGill law student, not Ken Dryden, hockey star. Now, now Ken does assure, assure us all in this story that despite his consuming summer interest in pollution, he will be hockey-oriented once training camp rolls around in September. Ken says that one of the very good things about hockey is that you get a lot of time for other things. I really don't know what I want to do yet, but hockey gives me a great chance to experiment. And our final feature this week, we have Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail talking about a very prolific hockey family, the Cullens. Now, full disclosure here, uh, my dad, uh, who worked in the automotive business for most of his adult life, was a service manager for Brian Cullen's General Motors dealership in St. Catharines for a few years. And I always thought Brian uh, treated my dad really, really well. Uh, the only reason he didn't last more years with Brian was because it's quite a drive every day from Port Coburn to actually Lowbanks, where my parents lived, uh, out along the shore of Lake Erie to Lake Ontario, where the uh, St. Catharines dealership was. I did happen to talk to Brian a couple times, and I know he was a really good guy. And just before the pandemic, uh, I had the opportunity to have lunch with Brian at Marcel Dion's Niagara Falls restaurant. We got a chance to talk about those days when my dad worked there, and it was a really interesting time for me. And on the occasion of uh, one of the Cullen family members' retirement, Dan Proudfoot did this story in the Toronto Globe and Mail 50 years ago this week. Dan writes, being the youngest of the brothers, Ray Cullen has always found himself following and the latest development isn't any different. Brian's now 37. He always moved first. Barry was astride behind and then came Ray, the youngest, by seven years to Barry and thus stepping uh, time to the beat of the brothers' accomplishments. The three Cullens played hockey and with Ray's decision of the past month, it can be said that all three now retired from hockey, and they all retired when they were 29 years old. Now, by today's National Hockey League standards, quitting at 29, it's almost an unnatural act. 29, in hockey terms, is often considered still puberty. Uh, quitting then just isn't, isn't heard of. Moreover, Cullen's decision brings to an end two get decades in which the Cullen family name was prominent either in professional hockey or the junior league that feeds the pros. So what happened? Well, Ray Cullen played last season with the Vancouver Canucks, but he says himself that he didn't play very well. Then hockey's draft last month left them with all the damaged status of a bruised apple in a ripe, unpicked orchard. 
The drafts do things to guys' summers, all right. Guys like Guy Lafleur or Marcel Dion, top picks from the juniors, they contemplate imminent incomes measured in the tens of thousands. Guys like Ray Cullen got to wonder what happened. You have to think when you're not protected and there are 14 teams in the league and none of them want you, I kind of expected that I might have been traded before the draft, but I didn't. I didn't expect not to be selected. Rochester, Vancouver's team in the American League, finally took me in the reverse draft, says Ray. Now, the way uh, the wife and I look at it, we have five boys, three of them are in school, and just last year we bought a house in Niagara on the Lake, so we don't want to move around anymore. And who could blame them? Ray also says that uh, he wonders why at 29 he should go back to the minors and kick around there for six or seven years or maybe longer. And he knows he could. He knows he could play minor league hockey and be reasonably successful. And then think, well, Ray says maybe at 38, I'd find out I'm through. And even if I saved my money, what could I turn to at 38 years old? Now, don't be misled. Ray Cullen has no complaint with hockey in general. It's simply that he believes now is the time to get out for his own benefit. He has come to the same conclusion as did his brothers before him. I think that maybe we all saw things through Brian's eyes. Some guys stick with hockey just as long as they can, but maybe we have the confidence in ourselves that we can do other things. Today, Brian operates his own Chevrolet Oldsmobile Cadillac dealership in St. Catharines, and Barry has the same sort of GM corner store in the city of Guelph. Ray tells us that he's considering several possibilities, and entering an auto leasing business is one of them. That's how Brian and Barry got started, and of course, he would have great mentors in those two guys. As one of hockey's brother acts, the Cullens will not be remembered along with the Conikers, the Bentleys, the Mahavliches, and the Espositos. But the Cullens did leave their marks, not the least of which remain in St. Catharines, where the family moved from Ottawa so the sons could play first line junior A hockey. Brian scored a record 68 goals for the St. Catharines Teepees in the 19. 19- 53-54 season and that record stood until just this past season. Barry also played for the Teepees and he was rookie of the year in the Western Hockey League when he turned pro in 1955-56. The only notable NHL year for the older brothers however was 57-58 when they both played for the Toronto Maple Leafs, Brian scored 20 times and Barry 16 for the Leafs. In the meantime, Ray was back home preparing to make the St. Catherine Teepees in Junior A the very next season. Now, ironically, of the three brothers, Ray has the best NHL record. He scored 28 goals for the Minnesota North Stars in the first year of uh, post-expansion when the North Stars' first season. Then he scored 26 and 17 in the next two seasons. He was drafted a year ago by the Canucks in the expansion draft, and his production sank to just 12 goals and 21 assists. Ray says, I wasn't that great of a hockey player once I got out of junior hockey. I never thought I'd really make it to the NHL. I thought it was out of my reach, but I thought it would be possible to have a pretty darn good career in the minors. 
expansion, of course, changed all that for Ray. The one thing Ray had going for him, of course, was that everywhere he played, he scored. He was not a great skater. Brian's problem, too. Uh, he always said that he wished he'd been a better skater. But he was effective enough to put the puck in the net. Ray said, one thing I do, do feel good about, I did go up to Detroit for 20 games or so the year before expansion, and he scored eight goals and eight assists in 27 games. Not a bad record at all in a six-team National Hockey League. Ray Collins sums things up by saying, I consider myself fortunate enough to have got in a couple of years to have come along when the money did bloom for hockey players with the expansion. Ray is now going to enter into another industry, most likely the car dealership industry. He's got two great mentors in Brian Cullen and Barry Cullen. And I can say from having known Brian Cullen, he's a great guy and he would certainly take care of his younger brother, Ray. So that is this week's show, everyone. We're in the dog days of summer, but we still got some good hockey content, I think, for you. What did we learn this time around? Well, we learned that the Bruins, on the heels of their most disheartening playoff loss in recent memory, are now having trouble uh, getting some of their superstars under contract. We found out just how Canadians' new goalie Ken Dryden is spending this offseason, a very interesting offseason for the young, uh, recently developed superstar. And we learned that there is a real danger that the Vancouver Canucks, if they continue on their current path, might become as big a mess as the California Golden Seals. Let's hope that doesn't happen. So next week, uh, we've got a, a little bit more news. That the news is a little harder to dig up for next week. But we do have a complete line of the North Stars asking for a combined salary of $100,000. And we've got that story. We'll learn a bit about Ed Houston, who we talked about this week, the new arbitrator for salary disputes in the NHL. And we'll get an update from Kevin Walsh of the Boston Globe on the st- status of Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito's contract negotiations. That's all next week on the Hockey Podcast Network. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for what he does. After sitting with him this week and watch him put the show together, I am even more amazed at just how professional and how proficient this guy is with the technology and with broadcasting in general. I can't thank him enough for all his hard work. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, presides our intro and outro music. Uh, they're starting shows again. They've got one coming up in Edmonton uh, within the next couple weeks, uh, an outdoor concert. You ever get a chance to see him perform live? Don't miss the opportunity. Other music and sound effects in the podcast are written, produced, created by Andy Cole as well. Our research, of course, comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every day during the hockey season on Twitter at at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey, also on Instagram with that number. Uh, we have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. You can get the podcast at any of your favorite podcast apps or simply go to the Hockey Podcast Network in order to listen to each show. 
Thanks again to everyone who tunes in every week. We're having a lot of fun. It won't be long now until the 1971-72 season gets underway. We'll have all the news from that, including a lot of deep dives into the formation of the World Hockey Association. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the 